Welcome to the Acer Show of Entrepreneurship and Original Development Podcast. Each publication in our journal is a great opportunity to share significant and audacious contributions to a large audience. My guest today is Richard Arison from the University of Edinburgh. He recently published an article entitled Margins of Intervention, Gender, Bourdieu, and Women's Regional Entrepreneurial Networks. He co-authored this paper with Claire Leach and Maura McAdam. It has been published in Entrepreneurship and Regional Development, a journal edited by Taylor and Francis. Richard, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Can you tell us what is the origin of your paper? Why have you decided to address this particular topic? And what is the question you aim to answer? I suppose in terms of background, there are two themes that really stimulated our interest in this topic. One was the theoretical issue of how gendered dispositions produce and reproduce fields of socioeconomic production, such as entrepreneurship. So we've had a long-standing concern with issues of gender and how gender influences entrepreneurial behavior, attitudes, and so on. And that led us into a consideration of the work of Bourdieu, his theory of situated practice, because Bourdieu sees these dispositions as a specific hypothesis, uh, which he understands as a set of internalized, embodied ways of thinking, feeling, acting, and doing, all of those shaped by social structure. So we have this theoretical interest developing on the one side, and on the, the other side, uh, we have also a longstanding interest in issues of entrepreneurship policy, particularly policies designed to explain the underrepresentation of women in entrepreneurship in terms of business ownership and other metrics, and recognizing that there has been a significant increase in policy interest in this area to stimulate uh, the development of women's entrepreneurship to address the, the masculinist bias, as it were, in entrepreneurial activity. And one such mechanism, which has been implemented quite widely, but relatively uh, little attention from a research point of view has been given to it, is the establishment of formal women-only networks uh, set up to provide a, a basis for exchange of views, the development of social capital, uh, mutual support and reinforcement for women uh, entering an entrepreneurial career path. And I suppose that took us to our central research question, which was, how do women entrepreneurs perceive the effectiveness of these formal women-only entrepreneurial networks? And to what extent do they see these as mitigating the isolation and individualization inherent in the gendered policy landscape? So I, I think that, that theoretically and from a policy point of view, I think that, that's how our, our interests in this area converged. What are the main contributions of your paper? In terms of contribution, I suppose there are uh, three or four that immediately come to mind. I think the, the first is that we take a feminist reading of Bourdieu's theory of practice. I mean, Bourdieu himself would not be, never self-described and would not be described as a feminist. But there is a, a subset of Bourdieu's literature uh, from a, which it seeks to reinterpret and apply Bourdieu in a feminist context. And again, in the entrepreneurship domain, we've seen interest over the last decade or so in Bourdieu and his theory, uh, as, as it applies in a number of dimensions to in entrepreneurship. We've also seen, of course, a, 
uh, a very strong research theme in terms of gender and feminist approaches to entrepreneurship, but very few scholars in entrepreneurship have pulled those two threads together. So I think our first contribution was to bring Borgesian analysis and feminist gender-based analysis together in entrepreneurship. I think the second contribution, more on the practical side of things, is that we produce, I think, some compelling evidence on how formal women-only entrepreneurial networks actually can operate in a counterproductive manner, uh, that they can perpetuate and reproduce the embedded masculinity of entrepreneurship. In other words, they they have exactly the opposite effect to that intended. Uh, And we, we unpack that in terms of Bourdieu's understanding of how Habitus develops and the role of Doxa and Illusio in, in shaping expectations and understandings of uh, how the system operates. I suppose a third contribution is that we focus very much on the perceptions and lived experiences of women entrepreneurs. Uh, we seek to research with them rather than research on them uh, to, to give them voice. And I think that helps in terms of the the richness of the conclusions that we can draw. Then finally, and again on the policy side, I think we argue that unless there is a change in how these networks are set up and operated, they will not address the fundamental challenge of improving women's presence in entrepreneurship. And to that extent, I think finally, we introduced the, the concept of margins of intervention, which is a phrase that we, we've borrowed from uh, the post-feminist philosopher Rosa Bredotti, uh, who talks about margins of intervention and the need to explore these and exploit these to uh, engender transformation in, in society. So I, I think those uh, would represent, I think, the main contributions. What also are you the, the main theoretical or maybe methodological challenge or challenges in addressing such a question? I think there are a number of challenges. I think methodologically, uh, I mean, we are shifting between field levels, stru- the structural dimension and the individual level, the micro level of individual behavior. And Managing that tension is both a, a methodological challenge and a theoretical challenge in terms of how one, one approaches it. Uh, in terms of methodology, we explicitly adopted an interpretive approach and applied it really as a dialogical process operating between theory and empirical observation, recognizing that our researchers' judgment, our cognition, was an important part of this. So we did as far as possible, although using a conventional interview format, we did, as far as possible, seek to uh, develop reflexive narratives with the participants rather than uh, orient our research to the development of explanatory models or theoretical propositions in the conventional way. Uh, and in some respects, I think this could be adduced to be, I mean, it, it is sometimes described as an abductive approach rather than inductive or deductive. But I think what we have done is to take a, a, a very specific view of the interview process. And, and I think the challenge for us was to see the interview not as a, a window on some sort of objective reality, but to see it as a participatory encounter, which very much invokes interactional, multimodal narrative and indirect uh, elements. It's very much a contextual process. 
And it's a, I suppose, we're, what we're trying to do is engage in the co-creation of meaning with these women. And in, in developing the paper, we've had a constant dialogue among ourselves and with outside readers as to how this methodological process actually can work in practice. It's, it's easy to say, but stepping back from one's own cognition and involvement in practice is very difficult. In terms of the theoretical context uh, or the theoretical challenge that we faced, as I said at the outset, one of the starting points for the paper was a concern with issues around women's entrepreneurship policy. And it is this policy dimension which uh, I, I think drove a lot of our early interest. Bringing Bourdieu and policy together raised for us increasingly a major theoretical challenge. Because one weakness of Bourdieu's theory of practice is that there is no real convincing theory of social change in Bourdieu. Uh, the, uh, there is a, an acknowledgement by Bourdieu that his work focuses on the processual nature of the reproduction of structures, but he actually doesn't say very much about how those structures are produced anew or transformed. That's a problem from a policy point of view. So we, we kind of hit a theoretical brick wall. And it was at that point that we saw scope to link Bourdieu's notion of symbolic violence as the manifestation of power and dominance in constructing and reproducing domination, uh, and that, which is, as he sees it, a, a subtle manifestation of uh, I suppose the, the complicity of the individuals in their own downfall. So uh, to some extent, he says, individuals end up in a certain position because of, of being dominated within that sort of power structure. Uh, but they, in accepting the terms of business and accepting the doctrine being subject to the illusio that governs the habitat as it operates in particular fields, to some extent, those individuals are complicit in their own domination. It becomes a, a, a self-serving vicious circle. And that's where we, we came back to the idea of margins of intervention. Uh, and as Bredotti expressed it, the challenge was that these margins of intervention were implicit. They needed to be actualized. There, there needs to be flesh on the bones of those. And, and we had this strange tension that emerged that on the one hand, Bourdieu is saying we don't have a, he doesn't have a real theory of social change. Bredoni's notion of margins in, of intervention, while intuitively uh, attractive, also stops short of a checklist of action points in terms of making it happen. So we we, we spent a lot a lot of time, increasingly as the paper developed, asking ourselves the question: How do we resolve this? How do we find a, a basis? for making effective recommendations. During your research journey, what was your biggest surprise or maybe the most counterintuitive results? In, in, in some respects, perhaps not a counterintuitive result, but a, a result which I think provides the, the basis for some interesting further research. Not, I think we concluded that not all networks were the same and not all experiences of the women members of those networks were the same. Now, I'm not saying that we started with a naive assumption of homogeneity, that everything should be the same and equal, 
But it became very clear as we went through uh, the reflexive narratives with the, the women who were participants in these networks, that there was a very, very clear distinction between those women who were right at the start of the entrepreneurial journey, uh, what we described as nascent entrepreneurs, either just at the startup process or had ventures that had been running for less than two years, as compared to women with longer experience with ventures that had been established for four or five or more years. And it became very clear that the less experienced entrepreneurs highly valued participation in women's only networks because it provided, as they saw it, a safe space for uh, acquiring skills, it built confidence, it created a social network that they could build their social capital on. More experienced women uh, respondents took a different view. Many of them recognized the value of women-only networks, but sought to go beyond that. And many of them, in fact, had joined mixed gender networks, general business networks, because they recognized that they needed to learn the rules of the game. And they could only do that by becoming honorary men, as it were. They, they needed to, to mix in that. They needed to build social capital with their male counterparts. And, and that reinforced this notion that uh, the network, women-only networks ran the risk of ghettoizing women's entrepreneurship unless and until a woman found a mechanism for trans for moving from the women-only network to more general networks. So that, that I suppose, is, it's not entirely counterintuitive, but it became a very clear separation. And I think that has implications for policy and, uh, and for practice in terms of how we design research samples, design research studies. The other surprise, I suppose, that uh, came up from this was the uh, how we sought to articulate the uh, implementation in practice of this idea of margins of intervention, uh, prompted by uh, somebody asking us, a practitioner asking us at one after one presentation, "Okay, there's a very interesting analysis. Now, what do I do?" As the person, as a person designed. The, the, interested in the development of policy. And initially we didn't have any answer to the, what should I do? Until we came across this concept of disciplined dissent. I suppose the surprise was that uh, in seeking to find an answer as to how to turn this uh, theoretically inspired argument into practical recommendations for change, we turned to a concept that was developed to account for the dynamics of political and class status relationships in medieval Europe. Now, there's an entire backstory as to how we find our way to this material. But this idea of uh, disciplined dissent really refers to the, the need to create a space in which it's possible to make a critique and in which those who dissent might be able to appropriate the cultural repertoire of those in positions of authority. So it's a bridging mechanism. It's about creating a space in which the dominated and the dominators can meet, in which those who have set the, the, the rules of the, the game, as it were, in Bourgeoisian terms within the field can meet and get, can be challenged by those who are at the moment outside that. And I think that the, <clears throat> this concept of disciplined dissent and the, the notion of diffused power 
that underlies that uh, does become a, a possible mechanism for developing the applied side of the, the implications of our paper. What we do, of course, is, I mean, we raise this towards the, the back end of the paper. And, and again, I think there's something in this concept of disciplined consent as a way of articulating the margins of intervention, which does give some potential for traction in terms of policy. Uh, I, but I, it also, I think, throws out an, an interesting challenge to us as researchers in entrepreneurship in terms of being open to ideas that come from apparently entirely unrelated areas. And the, the scope is for intellectual challenge and enrichment by looking outside the narrow confines of the discipline. What are the main implications of your work for entrepreneurs, policymakers, managers, practitioners in general? Well, some of those I've, I've touched on already. I think uh, in terms of uh, key implications, uh, I think we demonstrate that uh, and confirm that entrepreneurship as a social field really is suffused with masculinity that defines and limits, and limits the, the underpinning discourse. And the, the response to that in terms of policy and indeed from how we think about it analytically as researchers is not to say that that should be overturned. There's no magic bullet that will uh, change that situation. We need to recognize the dynamics, the microdynamics of the processes that operate within fields and identify, as I say, these areas for disciplined dissent and look for mechanisms where that uh, existing structure can be challenged. Uh, I think the, the other key element is that uh, we do recognize and need to recognize that the beliefs and behaviors of entrepreneurial actors are shaped by the wider society in which they live. Context matters. And again, this is something which we're becoming very familiar with in entrepreneurial research, but it does appear strong. And one of the, the reservations or one of the limitations perhaps of the, the study we have is that it is a micro level study of a small number of respondents in a particular region at a particular place and time. And there is a need to, to generalize. But I, I do think that we have uh, we, we have set out and developed a an, an approach to the examination of women's entrepreneurship which does have the potential, I think, to move us forward, uh, to build a, a policy, <coughs> excuse me, a policy orientation, which does go beyond the uh, simple nostrum that setting up formal networks, setting up women's only oriented programs may not be the most effective way of moving forward. Uh, I think we need to be more sophisticated in how we look at policy and more, more broad ranging in terms of looking not just at entrepreneurship policy narrowly defined, but how this interacts with uh, other policies in terms of family policies, social policies, welfare policies, which at the structural level, the social structural level, equally shape and influence the direction of women's entrepreneurship. Thanks a lot, Richard, for participating to our show and presenting your paper entitled Margins of Interventions, Gender, Bourdieu and Women's Regional Entrepreneurial Networks. 
All our podcasts are available on entrepreneurship-idea.com and on the main podcast platforms.